worshiping together. I don't know about you as a parent perhaps, but I've been asked questions that I didn't have immediate answers for in the moment by my children. One of them, he told me I could tell you that it was him, uh, was by my son Jonah, who just turned 12. This was his question some time ago. He says, he asked, if God can do away with Satan so quickly like he does in Revelation, why didn't he just do that in the garden when Adam sinned and fix everything right then? Well, one short answer would be the flood was our answer, only it would be the flood without Noah. I have another answer that I'll share. What I want to say, too, that there are two ways that we can ask this question. One of the ways we can ask this question is philosophically. Why? Why didn't God do it like that? Why did He do it like this? But I think the way that we most often ask questions like this is, why did God allow all of this? Why did God let it go on? Why do we have to wake up to another day of terrible news? I would ask you to consider the Hubble telescope. The Hubble telescope turned 30 years old in 2020. It circles the earth still today every 95 minutes. Hubble has made more than one million observations of the birth and death of stars, galaxies billions of light years away, and comet pieces crashing into Jupiter's atmosphere. Hubble's mirrors can collect 40,000 times more light than the human eye, which bounces off the primary mirror to the secondary mirror. The secondary mirror focuses the light back through a hole in the primary mirror. From there, the light shines to Hubble's scientific instruments. Each instrument has a different way of interpreting the light. Hubble has detected black holes which suck in everything around them, including light, and has played a key role in the discovery of dark energy, a mysterious force that apparently causes the universe to expand faster and faster as time goes on. In 2014, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field Image, get that phrase right, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field Image was developed. It is a composite image of exposures collected between the years 2003 and 2012 with Hubble's advanced camera. The resulting image made from 841 orbits worth of viewing time contains more than 10,000 galaxies. But the area in that photo, which took 841 orbits of viewing time to snap and contains 10,000 galaxies, the area in that photo is still only 124 millionths of the total area of the sky. Can you imagine showing up at NASA, <laughs> knocking on the door, telling them that you had something you wanted to show them? And you pull out your iPhone and say, listen, I was out on my porch the other night and I've got this new iPhone 13 and it's got three lenses. I can change the shutter speed I can have a slower aperture at night to get more, more light in. 
I could take night pictures. I was just taking some pictures of space the other night, and I was thinking to myself, man, NASA should really see these. Do you think NASA would be impressed? I don't think so. Because the picture on your iPhone, though it is not a false view of space, it is an extremely, extremely limited view. The grand narrative of God's redemption spanning from Adam and Eve to God's new heaven and new earth is the ultra-deep field image of God himself and all that he is like. Quick fix would be just the best iPhone image. The Bible then is like a telescope for us that sees deep into who God is to search and to explore all the expanses of all of his glory. Romans 11.33, Paul says, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable are his ways. To read the Bible clearly is to see is to search the expanse of the fullness of the glory of God. Over thousands of years of exposure, the Bible gives us sharp pictures of the character and the power of God. Through thousands of years of observations, we get increasingly clearer picture of God. He created the world by His Word. He made promises and He kept His promises. We see Him making rescues time and time again. We see Him comforting His people in mourning. We see Him fighting battles. We see God as a husband and as a father. Through the whole Bible, we collect more light, as it were, than any human eye, any human heart could collect alone. Through the Bible, we learn not only about light, but also about darkness, that dark energy, as it were. We observe there is such a thing as evil and sin in the world, and we come to understand the the very meaning and the order of our existence. Why did God make his redemptive process take thousands upon thousands of years? As one scientist said of the NASA deep field image, some things take longer to observe. God desires and he is willing to show all of his glory, be it terrible or wonderful to us. For example, in Romans 9, to 23, it says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. We underestimate the lengths that God will go, the time that God will take to show his glory in patience. We can look to the skies, we can look to the heavens, we can look to all creations. Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. The ever-expanding universe, day to day, pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge that is about God. Psalm 1 and 2, 19, 1 and 2. All creation, everything God does in it is the expression of God in all of His glory. When God made man, God not, did not just 
make man out of his imagination. He made man out of his image. God reflected himself most personally and most intimately in creating mankind and making man and woman in his own image. After God made everything that exists in the world, then God said, let us make man in our image. Genesis 1, 26. So the whole epic of mankind, the meaning of being a man and a woman, is intertwined with the image and the glory of God on the earth. Mankind is where God most personally deals with his image on the earth, between the garden on the earth and the garden in heaven. That's the meaning that the Bible gives us. Looking into the Bible at God is like looking through a telescope aimed at space. You see things there you could not see with your own eyes. The expanse of redemptive history shows us the fullness of God's glory. When you just look up into space, you might know something is out there. You might know something is big and mysterious and wonderful. But when you open the Bible, you begin to get very specific about what God is like and what he has done. Instead of asking, why didn't, why didn't God just wrap this up sooner? Let us marvel at the manifold glory of God. One exposure after another exposure. One chapter after another chapter of God's infinite glory. This is the underlying meaning of our passage today. We are looking in this passage at the outer rim. The future edge of what we can see. What God is showing us in that ultra deep field view. Just like in the NASA image, there was a galaxy, an entire galaxy at the corner of the image over here, and another entire galaxy at the very far corner over here. Well, in the Bible, there is a garden at the beginning of time, and there was a garden at the very end of time. This is the last chapter. In the entire Bible. This is that last, that future edge of God's revelation of himself. Like the, the Hubble telescope can see billions of light years away, the Bible can see into forever in history. And much of the point of these words placed here is that the whole creation, all of history, all of existence is God's. And here is what we should see today. That Christ is every exposure of the glory of God. Even when Christ is not mentioned by name in the Bible, every chapter of the Bible is but a mirror which collects and reflects the light of Jesus Christ on the earth. Read again that passage Marilyn read for us. Let's look to see how Christ, how Christ is the center of God's redemptive history from garden to garden, from the beginning to the end. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. The angel showed me the river of the water of life brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. Like I mentioned last week, Tim Keller says about the book of Revelation that every single phrase is pregnant. It has something connected to the entire Bible, especially in 21 and 22. This passage, Revelation 22, 1 through 5, is echoing the beginning of the Bible, repeating it. Why is that? It really reads like it's copied and, and pasted even. Why would the Bible end the same way that it began? A garden with light and water and a tree and the people of God. It is showing us that God has one plan of redemption. That He is exercising in His sovereignty and His, in His providence one unified goal, one unified purpose on the earth. And we're going to see that that is His glory in the person of Jesus Christ. Consider what Revelation just showed us, that in heaven, in this city, there is a river. Genesis chapter 2 speaks about the river in the garden. Genesis 2, 10 through 12, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided around the whole land of Havilah. Or excuse me, it came four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. Now just as a side note, any of those stones sound familiar? Gold, onyx, and delium? The stones are in the temple of Israel. And in numbers, in numbers, the manna in the desert is described as having the appearance of delium. When God's people were rescued from slavery in Egypt, though, they did not find themselves in a garden immediately. They found themselves in a desert. No food, no water. What does God do? Well, the God who made the water in the garden makes water come from a rock in order to give them life in the desert. We learn through the New Testament that the whole point of that provision in the rock in that moment of history, well, that was just a mirror reflecting the true source of the water of spiritual life, which is Jesus Christ himself. The whole point was Christ all along. For they drank, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. In John 7, the people of Israel are having a feast. It's a holiday to remember when God gave them that water in the desert. And on the last day of that great feast, Jesus stands up and says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, for out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The river in the garden was always a foreshadowing of the rock, which was the foreshadowing of Christ who promised the Spirit flowing from our hearts if we will believe in Christ, that we might then drink the water of life and heaven with God forever. It all mirrors reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ forever. So in heaven, the kind of water that flows from the ground, that's not what kind of water it is. Rather, it flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
The water in heaven is itself life from God and from Christ the Lamb. So the Bible contains hundreds of applicable connections to water and to life. Why? To expose the fullness of the glory of God who gives us life through Jesus Christ. That's why there's a river in the first and in the last garden. And there's a tree, the tree of life. Genesis chapter 2 verse 8 says, The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, man had to leave the garden. Adam and Eve were thrust out of the garden. Why? Why? Because God wanted to keep mankind from the tree of life. We, we die because of sin. Listen to what God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 and 24. After Adam and Eve sinned in the very beginning, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also hold of the tree of life and eat and live forever. There seems to be an unfinished sentence there. Pick up in verse 24. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Because of our sin against God, he shut all mankind out from the tree of life. We were not to eat of the tree of life strictly because it gives life. Were Adam and Eve to come back and eat the tree of life, that would mean they would live forever, supposedly in their sinful state of spiritual death. It's not good to live forever in sin. And be in death spiritually. It's very bad, but it's better only through Christ. It is made better only through Christ who died and rose again to new life. That lives forever having conquered sin rather than living forever in sin. Now that Christ has come and risen from the grave and cleansed all sin through his blood on the cross... Only on that side of forgiveness of your sin does God say, come back into the garden and eat from the tree of life again. God wants those who are made in his image to live forever. But he wants us, he loves us, and he's so gracious to make a way for us to live forever without living in spiritual death apart from him. And in this garden, in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, God's people are alive with no curse. 22, 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Being cursed, what, what does that mean? It's like being under a spell that you cannot get out of. Just imagine a boy being cursed and turned into a donkey. How can you undo the curse? Curse means to be bound or to be laid under something. It is a state that you can't get out of. So who can break the curse? It's not very different than we see in the movies. People are stuck under a curse. and They, they need a better, stronger spell to get them out. God cursed us under bondage and the effects of sin because of sin. Just think about it. Why? 
Why is everything in the world so great, yet so off? So great, yet so empty and never fulfilling? Why is the world so unimaginably beautiful, yet so overtaken by shadows and so many corners of darkness? Why? Why in such a wonderful world is there so much lying and stealing and cheating and hurting and murder and abuse of authority and death? This world is cursed. Like a house that looks beautiful on the outside, but inside is filled with ghosts. We're under the curse. And so is our world, cursed because of sin, cursed to be placed under the rule and the taint of sin. Doesn't that explain everything? Doesn't that make the world make sense? Why is it so good, yet it can never break into really good? Why do we keep getting more headlines in the news every day all over the world? We just can't break out of the curse. Try as we might. Governmental policies that outlaw evil don't stop men from evil things. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have governmental policies. New Year's resolutions don't make it past February. Neighborhood community watch groups don't seem to stop burglaries. International alliances don't stop war. Why? Because we're cursed. The whole world is under a curse. Think about it, what it's saying about in heaven. No longer will there be anything accursed. How? Well, through the pages of exposure after exposure in the Bible, we see how Christ comes in between the two gardens to break the curse by the power of his death and resurrection. To Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 21, and God says, if a man has committed a crime, this is part of their law when they come out of Egypt and they are going into the promised land. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now that's an Old Testament mirror meant to show the light of Christ. Paul clarifies that light in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He, He broke the spell as it were by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Paul is looking to Jesus on the cross and saying, didn't God say cursed everyone who was on a tree? Yes, but Jesus was a righteous man, not dying his own death, but dying our death, and then going into the grave like the law says that day, but only then he raised from the grave, he raised from death to break the curse to break the spell of sin binding us and laying on us that we could never break out of Christ was hung on a tree the cross of Calvary he entered the curse but broke it 
Because though he died, he died for our sin. And he rose from the grave and so we sing. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And he stands in victory. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Friends, you do not have to wait until heaven for the curse to be lifted from your heart. Every exposure of the curse is pointing toward Christ Jesus who lifted the curse. Have faith in Jesus Christ. Be born again. Be born of the Spirit by faith in Him or nothing will change and you will continue to try to do good in a cursed world and body and person. Under the curse, you really can do nothing but sin. By faith in Christ's death and resurrection, we are freed from the curse. How can we possibly endure another day in this cursed, wicked world? Trust in Christ who freed us from the curse now and know that in heaven, Christ has done something about that curse and God is making a new world where there is nothing cursed. Nothing. Nothing that is accursed. Not just better than this world. Not just like the Puritans thought about America compared to England. Nothing accursed. Death is not the end. Injustice in this world is not the end. Christ broke the curse. See how the tree of death, the cross, became the tree of life when Christ died there and then rose again. Exposure after exposure after exposure. We see the tree in the garden in Genesis, the tree in the garden in Revelation is really about Christ on the cross to break the curse for us. And last exposure, no pun intended, God will be the light. There in the very beginning of the Bible it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now at the end it is saying, in Revelation 22 verse 5, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Even this world's light will not be needed. How can we explain this? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, tries to describe the differences between the earthly and the heavenly realms. I can't say I agree with every take that C.S. Lewis has on heaven and hell and the divorce between the two, but it's a wonderfully romantic and helpful imaginative look at the differences. Lewis tries to describe the differences between the earthly and the heavenly realms by giving his characters exaggerated engagements with earthly images. At one point, the main character describes his experience. He says, the grass... The grass, hard as diamonds to my unsubstantial feet, made me feel as if I were walking on wrinkled rock. 
And I suffered pains like those of the mermaid in Hans Andersen. A bird ran across in front of me and I envied it. It belonged to that country and was as real as the grass. When it landed, it could bend the stalks and spatter itself with the dew. All this in contrast to the person who is but a ghostly mist in the book, not even really making contact with anything. The point is that the ghost thought of their world, the earth, as the, quote, real one, and that the spiritual world was a sort of phantom reality. But Lewis is trying to show that heaven actually is the realm of substance and earth is the realm of shadow. This creation here, all of it, is illusions and pretensions. Kind of like someone buying cheap purses on the black market. Heaven is actually the original. The heavenly reality where God dwells is so spiritual and so like God in His nature that even the light of this world is created and in heaven is unnecessary and is unfitting. God created a light that gives life in the way of living in this world, on the earth. But that is all. Paul talks about the difference of the earthly body and the heavenly body in 1 Corinthians 15 like this. He says, for not all flesh is the same. Remember the people in 1 Corinthians, 1 Baptist Corinth, they were really struggling with the resurrection. What kind of bodies we're going to have. I don't know if we even believe in resurrection. You're saying there's resurrection of the dead. It doesn't make any sense to us. And, and Paul is using multiple arguments to show them, no, 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 the resurrection is true, A, because Jesus rose from the dead, and because you need to raise from the dead. And part of his argument in 1 Corinthians 15, 39 through 41, Paul says, For not all flesh is the same flesh, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. In comparison, he says, there's one glory of the sun, another of the moon, another glory in the stars. For the stars differ in star from glory. Paul's point is that heaven has different bodies than the kind we have here. Revelation is telling us it even has a different light than the kind we have here. Of course, this is all about Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul said, seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus? He told King Agrippa, I saw a light brighter than the sun. Brighter than the sun. And what happened when Paul saw that light on earth? It blinded him. It's so glorious blinds the men of earth and see how all the light of the sun has just given these giving us the explanation the example for Christ himself being the light of heaven peeking down into earth I saw it this morning and I love to see it the circumstances where there are dark thick ominous clouds but there are patches where light peek through peaks through from behind the clouds creating lights rays of light beaming down on the earth isn't that the whole point of Jesus Christ? There is the light of creation, but Jesus has come as the light of heaven on earth. 
John chapter 1 speaks about Jesus this way when he came. All things were made through him. That's through Jesus. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him, in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's how John introduces us to Jesus. In him was life, and his life was the light of men. That light, Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then that light, that word becomes flesh, becomes man, Genesis and John 1, 14. Later in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus cried out in John chapter 12, verse 44 to 46. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, listen to what he says. Listen to Jesus' words. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me, John 12, 44. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world, Jesus said, as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus came into a world of created light in order to begin showing us the truer light of God, of which the sun and every star and every galaxy was but a mirror of Jesus Christ. How does light come into a world with, that already has a light and show the world the light. Listen to Jesus' words. I have come into the world as light. I have come into the world. He, as a person, came into the world as light. And the whole point was whoever sees Jesus, whoever sees him, whoever sees this light, sees beyond the sun, sees beyond the earth, sees beyond the galaxies, whoever sees me, Jesus says, whoever sees me, the light, sees him who sent me. You see Jesus. You see far beyond the light that God created in the world. To see Jesus, that is to have faith in him. To believe in him as God's son, crucified for you. To, to see Jesus and believe in him is to see a light more real, more glorious than the light of 10,000 created galaxies. To believe in heaven. To think about enjoying heaven's light forever. Would you do that today? It depends on how he responds to heaven's light peeking through down onto the earth. Jesus continues in John chapter 12, if anyone hears my words, his words, not his voice, not his person in physical space, but if you hear my words like you and I are hearing them today, if you hear my words and you do not keep them, Jesus says, I do not judge him. 
For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Friends, to reject Christ as the son of the living God, the light of life in this world, is to remain in judgment, remain under the curse, remain in sin, and be judged on that last day because you never saw a light farther than the sun. It's to remain in darkness in this world spiritually. To remain judged, unforgiven for sin, uncleansed by sin, still in the darkness, still under the curse. But this is what it means to be a Christian. Not just to go to church, not just to do nice things or pay it forward at Starbucks, give something to the poor on the street every now and then. Those are things Christians ought to do. But to be a Christian is to trust in Jesus Christ as the light of heaven, the, the pure holy righteousness of God that came down to the earth and went to the cross in our place and Jesus there doing that is more light, more glory of God than 10,000 sons. We don't see that light with our eyes. All the mirrors of scripture are not reflecting that light into our eyes. The goal is that we see it with our hearts. Listen to how Paul talks about what it means to be a Christian in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, even if our gospel, the gospel that we're preaching about Jesus, if it's veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. They can't see. It's not their eyes can't see. It's that their minds can't see. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, not us as apostles, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the very God that said, let there be light in the first place. God has done it again. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To disbelieve Jesus Christ is to be and remain in the darkest of darknesses in your heart even though the created sun of earth shine bright upon your face. Can you see how the light of the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars are but imitations, are but mirrors of the light of Christ, which will truly light heaven forever in an existence we can't imagine? So Paul says again, Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us. Those who are trusting in Christ, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is what it means to become a Christian. To be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what it means to pass from the domain of darkness into the domain of light, the domain of Christ. To see him, to see Jesus as the light sent from heaven to die on the cross to forgive our sins 
so that what happened in the first garden we may enjoy remedied in the last garden forever. Would you believe in Jesus Christ today? Today. Do you see Christ as the son of the living God died on the cross though he came as the light to forgive sin and break the curse exposure after exposure after exposure picture after picture after picture from the first garden in Genesis 1 through 3 to the new garden in Genesis 1 20, in Genesis 22 1 through 5 Exposure after exposure, exposure of the light of Jesus Christ reflecting off the mirrors of the Old Covenant, the, the mirrors of the blood of Passover, the mirrors of the prophets speaking the word of God, the mirrors of the temple being rebuilt, the mirrors of the water coming out of the rock. And how Christ is the thing, the one, the man who unites all of God's glorious, redemptive purposes from the beginning to the end. Would you believe in Jesus Christ today? Make sense of the world. See that he has broken the curse for you, lived a sinless life that we cannot because of the curse. He broke through the curse by rising from the dead. What other hope do you have to break through the curse of sin and death? What other hope do you have to break the curse of sin and death? Would you tell someone about Jesus today? Jesus is the singular salvation between the gardens. When we step back and we look at the ultra deep field of the image of the Bible, there is Christ, the center of it all, reflected on every page. There is Christ Jesus, reflected, shown, glorious in every frame. Every verse of the Bible, a mirror collecting and reflecting the light of Christ. Every single person we meet, do not identify them wondering if they are Democrat or Republican, wondering if they think we need gun reforms or if that actually wouldn't fix anything. Not as black and white, not in terms of old, young, rich, poor, but as all who are under the curse. Are those that you will talk to today this week, are they those who have seen the light, who have heard Jesus' words so that they can respond to him? Or are they those who remain only in darkness, only under the curse, with nothing but death and judgment awaiting them? Every single person, you and I, we are all between the garden in Eden, in the garden on the last day, with judgment in between. Christ alone 
is the redeeming mediator between the garden on the earth where sin began and the garden forever where there will never be anything cursed again. The Bible is one million exposures from God in the garden to Israel to the church and in heaven and Christ is the light in every frame. So it is that the God who has said, let there be light, he himself will be the light. May the God who said, let there be light, shine on our hearts today, so with our hearts we may see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the full exposure of your glory, of your power, of your grace and mercy, of your love, of your provision to send Christ to be a curse, to die, to raise. Father, we pray that right now, today, you would help us see it in our hearts the light of Christ would shine. As you pray for a moment, just consider as we reflect on the service what it means to be a Christian. It does not mean that you do things or go places, it means that something has happened in your heart, that you see the glory of God in the light of Jesus Christ. You hear his words, you recognize him as the means for God breaking the curse, forgiving our sin, and raising all who are in Christ to life forevermore. Pray and reflect to consider if there is faith in your heart for Christ today. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to hear your word read, to sing it today, to hear it preached and proclaimed that we might see the light of heaven in Jesus Christ. Would you help us to endure, help us to repent, help us to love you more, saying more of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.